You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm Virginia Hayward. I've got three guests this morning and I hope we're going to give you a really interesting show. With me is Craig Wilson from Gentiana. Morning Virginia, morning listeners. And a new person for our program, Reuben Neudstieg from Wild Rose Nursery. Good morning, how are we? Excellent Reuben to see you here. Thank you. Chris Williams, um, our urban horticulturalist from Burnley. Hi Virginia, good to be back. And Chris, I believe you just won a little award. I did. I, I got a. Uh, for the, I live in the city of Yarra, and I work there at Burnley. And I was uh, at the community awards last week. I was the uh, special mention in the Citizen of the Year award. So not the not the Citizen of the Year, but the but the special special mention. <laughs> so yeah, that was a great honour. Really, really uh, and fantastic. That, that is for horticultural involvement. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think uh, I've worked for about 10 years, uh, you know, trying to make my, uh, you know, interest in urban food production uh, linked to Burnley as a kind of outreach place. So I, it, I guess it was recognition of my engagement with the Yarra community, uh, you know, community gardens, the Collingwood Children's Farm, um, with Fair Share, providing plants where I can and, and getting people, to, groups to come to Burnley and, and see what can be done and just to see the gardens, not just the food stuff. Well, one of the things about Burnley is—is it, is it the second oldest garden in Victoria? It's—it's it's interesting. I was trying to um, remember that that exact uh, detail the other day, showing people around. It certainly has some of the oldest planted trees, and I guess—I guess if you include its period as a survey paddock in the earliest days of the of the colony, then indeed. Um, but eighteen sixty three formally, and it is a very lovely garden, and it's a public garden stuck there on the arrow and people just don't know it's there kind of discovered during the pandemic i must oh, of say course. um but but and and so now becoming a little quite popular for weddings and and uh which you have to book in obviously but but you're right still i think people see the sign university of melbourne and they're kind of a bit reluctant that there's still a bit of hesitation they don't realize it like you say it's open all year round and it is a public garden. And it's a public garden. Sorry, it's a public garden. Mm. University can't keep people out. <laughs> exactly. Because, yeah. of course, I did my I did a Cert 4 at Burnley when I first yeah. came back from living in Britain for a long time. And it was just – I came back to look after my father. So I went from having a high-powered, very interesting job to being a carer, which is a huge jump. And I hadn't lived in Melbourne for 25 years. And I think if I hadn't have gone to Burnley, I probably would have gone mad. But horticulture saved me. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of us are self-medicating on horticulture all the time. Well, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah. It's definitely a good one. And I would like a little bit less rain so I could do more in my garden. I am finding in my garden that things are dying. I've lost salvias. I've lost a, quite a 
big brachychiton, which is a native tree. Yep. What's happened is my dam overflowed and the brachychiton is where the dam has decided to send its little rivulet. So it's just drowned. Virginia, was that a brachychiton purpurneus, just a currajong, or was it a big... No, it was the acerifolia. Oh, okay. I've also got the bottle tree, Yeah. and it lost all its leaves, and I thought it was going, but I went and communed with it yesterday, and it's putting out little new shoots, so it seems to be alive. But, I mean, I am on top of the hill, you know. How can I be drowning on top of the hill? But you do you do have quite a lot of dry climate plants. I do, yes. Mm. Then the salvias that have gone are dry climate ones. That's right. I mean, one of them is the officinalis, you know, the sage that you eat. Which I can't grow. Up in the dandenongs. Right. It always dies in the winter. Really? Yeah. Because you're much wetter than I am. That's right. Mm. Well, I'm very sad to lose it. I've got it in various other places. I've got it all over the garden, and they're still alive. But, you know, things are just coming out, and the roots are rotten. But, you know, you have to look at these things as an opportunity. Absolutely. There's no other way to view them. Mm. Yes. And the garden's still, you know, it's still lovely. I mean, it makes me happy. (laughs) And I haven't lost any roses. Good to hear. Good to hear. Roses are pretty, um, pretty resilient, really. Uh, there's some roses that actually just live in swamps, Rosa palustris. Yeah. There was a big clump of Rosa palustris at Periander, but I think they've, they've pulled it out recently. Oh. Suckers everywhere. Right, yeah. Mm. It's uh, normally grown on its own roots, so it shouldn't, shouldn't sucker. But, mm. Mm. And what, what is Rosa, where is it from, Rosa mm. palustris? I actually have no idea, but roses do generally come from the northern hemisphere, um, and I, I think it's more of a China... Mm. Yeah, and it actually likes wet feet. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It live in swamp areas. There's quite a lot of roses that sort of live in those sort of um, low lying areas. Yeah. Well, my roses are all looking absolutely fabulous, uh, except every now, except when the rain comes really heavily and it ruins the flowers. But you know, more come. It's really downy mildew. That's our that's the, the number be, one problem. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the roots will also come up more. They'll they'll sort of surface. And so if it really does dry out quite quickly, then they're going to be left. High and dry. High and dry. I couldn't help myself. I looked up Rosa palustris. It's actually north, uh, eastern United States. Eastern United States, right. Yep. Is it's natural yep. distribution. Wow. Yeah. I've never heard of it. No. A lot of roses do come from America as well. <laughs> yes. Mm. They're all, are they all... Northern Hemisphere? They're all Northern Hemisphere, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I thought so. The east coast of the United States is an extraordinary place for horticulture in terms of climate. Yeah. 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 Well, I I think I love my roses. I know there are various people who don't aren't terribly fond of roses who come into this station at times. Well, we're going to have to uh, convince them otherwise. I think Stephen is what's commonly called a lost cause. Yeah. I actually sent him a few. Um, in did? winter, I did, I did, because I think uh, I, I think I wanted to kind of change his idea. I think uh, most people look at roses as these icebergs or just joeys or, or in the front yard, a metre and a half tall, and that's really not what a rose is. A rose, uh, like I said, right across the Northern Hemisphere in all different situations. Um, many of them enjoy forest sort of conditions. Um, Rosa uh, xanthina. As a shade plant. Yeah, absolutely, as as a shade plant. Yeah, Um, with beautiful red canes, red thorns, um, and and they thrive in a a uh, low-light area. 
Um, many of them from Scotland as well, will so uh, quite low and dense to the ground. I've brought a few in here today to have a look at. Um, but yeah, there's 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 a spot in everyone's garden for uh, some of these species roses, and that's really what I'm trumping is these these species collections. And uh, well, your business is called Wild Rose Nursery, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I began that about seven years ago. Family history has a, a fair bit in roses. Well, um, I have to point out that your father is probably the best rosarian in the state. Yeah, well, actually, I, uh, I met with um, um, the State Rose Garden, which uh, first time I've ever been. And oh, really? It, yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Um, they do an amazing job there. And, That's uh, at Werribee? Yes, at Werribee. Yeah, so I spent the day walking around there last Monday with, uh, with my father. And um, there's a whole bunch of rose experts from all over the world. And I was actually even quite impressed with uh, with Father myself. He he really he has the knowledge. He really does. Yes, yeah. he he walks around my garden and tells me what I've got. And one of them is Rosa Neustegi. Rosa Neustegi, I yeah, Rosa Neustegi, I after yes. family. It's not a true species. Um, it's a, a species cross. So it's cross from Rosa Wilmottii and uh, Rosa Foliosa, maybe, I think. Yeah. And the one he gave me to put over the fallen down tree, mm-hmm. that is a fabulous rose that's called... L- Lavigata? No, Lang no. Road. Oh, Lee Gang Road Re- Climber. Yeah. Lee Gang Road. Lee Gang Road Climber. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that is a spectacular rose. It, yeah. And it really loves a bit of um, rough treatment as well. Yeah, we've uh, we've got one growing on a, a fence. It's about seven meters, eight meters across, and uh, beautiful, large, pink, five-petal flowers. Um, yeah. Is it a single flower? It is a single flower. This is this is a lot of people will come to me and say, "Does it only flower once, or is it a single flower?" And um, yeah, this this uh, we we've kind of changed the idea of what roses were for the last hundred and fifty years. We've gone from the the hybrid perpetual mixed with the uh, the tea rose from China. We've made the hybrid tea, and um, and during the nineteen twenties, thirties, this was probably very celebrated. We'd put that into our centerpieces of the garden, um, and then on the other flip side, you've got the Rosa multiflora uh, crossed with other damasks and things like this to get the uh, the floribundas. And then our rose collection has really consisted of these two. And they're very, very man-made. They really are. And, uh, and that's really limiting. It's limiting to the, the, the environment that you live in. It's also limiting to your garden. And nature's very, very balanced. It, um, it, to put out flowers that are the fist um, the shape... Uh, fist size and and to flower all year round it's it's really quite unrealistic for any plant to do that unless you're really going to feed them and and look after them and so that's why i champion this the species collection because they make such stunning gardens and they incorporate into a garden much better and uh as, as much as i did love the state rose garden we're still very clumsy at being able to incorporate a rose into the garden because they're so different to, uh, to um, they, they've been created so different that they're very difficult to incorporate. Yeah, so the species garden is running around the, uh, this outside of the uh, the Werribee 
<clears throat> and they're a bit lost with what to do with them. I mean, they're beautiful, and they, they, but they don't really know what to do with them. So they cut off the flowers, which uh, r- removes the hips, so you don't get these autumn colours. And you and need the hips. You need the hips, mm. yeah. Not all roses have hips. Um, I mean, they all create hips, but they don't all create spectacular hips. But there's Rosa moyesi geranium that have large orange pendulum hips. The Rosa foliosa turns beautiful reds and oranges and, and reds. Yeah. And then you have those roses that have absolutely beautiful red stems and and or really deep, deep um, reddish stems that yeah. are so beautiful. Uh, I've got uh, Rosa uh, omniensis petrocantha here today and uh, the thorns on it are just absolutely spectacular you wouldn't really grow it for the flower the flower is really uh, penny size and and for white um, so is that what they call the iron cross no 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 i don't think so no it's um it'd be very good if you're trying to keep someone away from getting well, somewhere yeah actually on, on my my fence at home i have rosa uh, lamarck uh, named after general lamarck from from uh, France, uh, I think he worked with he he worked with Napoleon, General Lamarck, and that's what Lamarck's named after. And it's a stunning white rambler. It's a beautiful rose. Oh, it's stunning. Yeah, I have it on my fence, and yeah, it should be called Neighbours Gone. It's uh, <laughs> no one's climbing through that. It doesn't it doesn't um, scratch you. It rips you apart. It really is. It's such a brutal rose. That, that almost looks pe- like an acacia. Sorry, Gary. That almost looks like an acacia, doesn't it? Uh, With the, the, the petals, yeah. that, uh, the, the leaves, yeah, mm. the leaf structure. And you can see why it uh, can be so um, light tolerant. Yeah. I occasionally have people coming into the nursery asking for neighbours be gone. <laughs> and I always recommend digitalis or monkshood. <laughs> Poison. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think um, it is handy sometimes to have something that actually stops I would like to have things that stop deer, as I've had my first deer infestation. You've had them coming in, have you? Once. One. Um, okay. One on one It's time. the beginning. Yes, it's the beginning of the end, I yeah. think. So yeah, I they're need, damaging. Yes, I need huge fences of nasty, nasty roses to stop the deer. I wonder if that would work. Yeah, the two, two chicken wire fences with a shrub planting between them about a metre and a half apart. Two chicken wire fences. Yeah. To, to what height? Doesn't one point eight? It, it, it's it's the the mindset of jumping two fences that they don't like, and 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 they won't jump in between because then they feel trapped. Uh, and if you then if you plant shrubs between them, of course, it just becomes a barrier. Well, that's um, something I don't want to do. No, you've and got a big property. I have a big property, and I don't have any gates. Mm-hmm. So that I don't think they really care about gates. But if I don't have gates, there's no point in putting a double fence. Oh right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trapped. And a double fence is a, is kind of a prison design, isn't it? Yes, effectively. And well, the alternative is yeah. a two point five meter fence, which Just is a, probably more prison. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a real problem. Yes, the double fence would be more attractive because you could cover it. You can eventually screen it out. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. But my problem is, of course, I've got this massive view and I don't want any fence over my view. So in one direction. And then beneath it, I've got the grapes. Do they eat grapes? Don't know. Mm. So that'll be interesting to see if they destroy the grapes. Be surprised if they don't. Mm. They seem to eat everything else. They do. Mm. Dear, and for some reason, we do not take them seriously as a pest. It is extraordinary. I mean, they, are, they must be so destructive of the bush. 
Mm. With those oh, the, the, the damage in the forest is is unbelievable, particularly around waterways. Mm. Yeah, it's tragic, isn't it? They wallow. So any any little creek or stream is just destroyed. It just becomes a mud pie. Well, I think they should be actually controlled, along with the pigs and the cats. It strikes me that they're the three immediately that need control. And foxes. And foxes. Yes, yes. I had a lovely time um, yesterday. I went up to visit Craig and he's got bees swarming in his garden. Craig's garden is absolutely beautiful and I love just walking around it because it's, you know, it, it's good for the soul. And I said, what's that? And it was a swarm of bees. So I thought that was pretty exciting. And then I went home and there was a long-necked turtle laying eggs in just in one of the beds near my dam. Wow. So that was rather uh-huh. a thrill. She'd been there for two days, and I was thinking, why is she... Or it didn't know the sex at that stage. You know, why why is she sitting out by the rock? You know, and, and it's a, that comfortable with you. You can you can go up to it. Well, I was or, very. I kept the dogs away. Yeah, and I was very quiet. But then yesterday, I went back to have another look at her, and she was actually digging. I thought, oh, that's what she's doing. Yeah. And then the next, as as I walked away from her, I saw a blue tongue. And I've got a willy wagtail nest right outside my kitchen window with littlies getting fed. And I've had eight ducks, eight adolescent ducks and their parents on the dam. So I've just had so much wildlife. And there was a, a bronze-winged teenager just sitting in my garden going, you know, that wonderful noise the bronze wings make. So I've had a, yesterday. I just had a lovely day of wildlife in my garden. It was exciting. Well, on Monday at the back of Long Acres, right down the back corner, rabbits. This is in what within eyesight of each other. Rabbits, foxes, deer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Long Acres. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's tough. That, yeah. Long Acres. Everybody is in Olinda, and Craig um, works there as well as running his nursery, which is also in Olinda. Gentiana, and it's a wonderful nursery, I think. Yes, I, this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward, and with me are Chris Williams from Horticulture from Burnley, Ruben Neudsteeg, Wild Rose Nursery, and Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery. And if you'd like to ring us and talk to us, the talkback number is 94190155, or you can text us on 0488. 809-855. And I will just tell you about the OGV things coming up. This weekend, there is still today to see the McPherson Garden, which is 28 Malvern Avenue in Glen Iris. That'll be open from 10 till 4.30. And then next weekend, the Maryborough Butter Factory is open for the OGV. Now, Maryborough is out sort of between Ballarat and Bendigo, so well worth a trip, but if you can't do the trip, don't go for our free ticket. We do have one free ticket to the Maryborough Butter Factory, and if you would like to go and you want to go with the free ticket, do ring Doug on 94190155. And the other thing that's important to remember with OGV is they have a a giving program 
for community gardens and things like that. And the applications for that close on November the 30th, 5pm November the 30th. So if you have any sort of community group that would like to apply, look up Open Gardens Victoria online and, and look up the giving program and they will tell you about it. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Jack Semler in here talking about her new book, Super Bloom, which would be a good Christmas present for some people. And her garden in Frankston is going to be open for the last time, 3rd and 4th of December. So I just mention that for people who'd like to go and see her garden, Heartland, in Frankston, on the 3rd and 4th of December. So that's the open garden. Bits and pieces for everybody. Open Gardens Victoria, a very important institution, I think, for all of us. So it's wonderful to get in to see private gardens occasionally. So, and as I say, Craig's garden is absolutely wonderful. It's an ongoing battle between Virginia and I. (laughs) I think his garden's wonderful. He says, oh, no, I need to do this. Oh, no, I need to do that. And, of course, comes down to my garden and says, you need to do this. You need to do that. Most of the time he's right. but I think other people see the garden, but we see the work. <laughs> uh, the, the, the first 10 years in the nursery were defined by drought. And anything I put in the garden, I couldn't buy anything because I didn't have any money. So anything that went into it was what didn't sell in the nursery, which is not really the ideal. I do love your, your nature strip. Yeah. You have a stunning nature strip. Yeah. So So about... Four years ago, I just four or five years ago, I sort of decided. Listen, I'm going to hit sixty soon. If I don't get this garden right, I'm never going to. So I got into it and pulled the whole thing apart. That's the best way to garden. And replanted it. Yeah. With things which have some style and some rarity and some interest. And it's going to take a little while before it's ready for the public to have a look at it. Virginia doesn't notice. <laughs> I do. Big, I think big beds with lots of wood chip. Like, little I always drive past very slowly at your, <laughs> at your nature strip. It's beautiful with grasses and yeah. we need a few species roses in there. Yeah, yeah. I'd be open to that. <laughs> yes, that's always um, a good As long idea. as they're not too tall. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of little small ones yeah. that go really well in grass areas. Yeah. Uh, and what's, what's your address, Craig? 138 Alinda Monbulk Road. Alinda. The, the Alinda Monbulk Road. So he's down the road from... Cloud Hill, which is Jeremy's garden. Beautiful garden. Yes, mm-hmm. and he's not far from the Dandenong's, Dandenong Ranger's Botanic Gardens. I have great trouble saying that. I just want to say the Rhododendron Garden, which I'm not allowed to say anymore. But more importantly, also Periander. And Periander, which oh, Craig sent me down to Periander recently because the dove trees were out and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Yeah, the dove tree is enormous. Absolutely, too. Enormous. Yeah. Beautiful. And you said the calmias are out now. Calmias are coming into flower now. I must go and have another look. Yeah. It's, it's, it's steep, so it's very good for me. There's about half a dozen calmia forms down there. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And this, describe this garden for us, Craig. Periander. It's a collection of trees and shrubs. It's basically an arboretum, isn't it? It is an arboretum. Well, the, t- the top half of it is. Yeah. And interesting trees, and most of them are labelled. None of them are really cared for properly, which is, is a bit sad. And, and it, then the lower part of the garden is, is cut up into terraces with the most beautiful stonework. And that's full of rhododendron and camellia and, and calmia. 
So I've got to go that low to look at the Kalmia. It takes me a long time to get back up the hill. Yeah, there's, there's one before the house, but mostly they're below the house. And the garden was originally set out by... Ansel, of Ansel Rubber. Yeah. And it's a 30s house? No, 50s. 50s, is it? Classic mm. 50s. It, it, it's that sort of Boyd-esque look with stone and timber. It's quite a nice house. And it's absolutely wonderful arboretum and people don't know about it that when you go there the people you see are locals with their dogs you yeah, it's know. a dog park mm. oh really from memory it's run by parks vic now is that it right? is yeah so yeah. i used to work for trust for nature which actually purchased periander when it was um it used to be called the victorian conservation trust set up by Rupert Hamer to, to take on interesting conservation projects. And they did a few things that weren't about biodiversity. So they owned it for a while and then transferred it to Parks Victoria sometime in the 90, 80s or 90s, I think. Also, anyway, it obscure wasn't, history. It wasn't the Ansels that's... Oh, no, no, I mean that... No, that, it was definitely the Ansels. But no, but they didn't transfer it. They didn't no. try and keep it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I can't remember the exact history, but in the Dandenongs, when, when Trust for Nature was set up, the, it's now much more ambitious around, you know, when I was there, we bought the largest freehold property in Victoria, which is Ned's Corner Station, which has now been transferred to traditional owners, which is very exciting. But they did a lot of smaller projects in the Dandenongs that included Periander, the um, William Ricketts Sanctuary, and the, the, the organisation was set up to be a charity, but set up by government. And so the aim was when something was threatened for sale for development, they would take hold for a while. Sometimes they kept them. So they trust for nature. Anyway, and then they eventually transferred. They always transfer a few things back to the Crown, as you say, technically, who then transfer it to the, to the responsible agency. So it, it just when, when you started talking about Periander, I thought, I think I've seen that file back in the day. Mm. There, were, there were plantings at Periander before the Ansels took over, so like the Copper Beach that are coming down the Fern Gully, they yes, are a hundred years old. Mm. They're massive. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yes, it's definitely worth a visit. Mm. And, and the stonework, the, the the dry stone walls, the, the stonemason spent twenty years working there. Oh wow. Yeah. Beautiful stonework. So the one thing is you do it is steep. And if you have the dodgy knees, dodgy knees, a dodgy heart, just give yourself a lot of time to walk back up there. Well, it goes from my place to about 150 metres from the Callista Road. Yes, that's a serious drop. Yeah, drop straight down. Yeah, mm. but it's absolutely, it's definitely worth it. It's definitely worth a visit. I think yes, it's one of the one of the better, the better things. So, what are you going to do about your swarm of bees? Oh, the, the bees are a, 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 a disaster, you know. It, it, they're not mine. They were, were dropped, left there by someone else, and, and I sort of thought, what can go wrong, you know? They're bees. They look after themselves, which is apparently not the case, and they have not been looked after properly by the person who left them there, and I just neither have the time nor the energy to take on yet another project. Mm. So, Yeah. And so they've swarmed because there's a new queen. Third swarm this year. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's so cold and wet. Yeah. It's a worry, isn't it? They might not. They could have left it for another month, yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I presume this... Um, I mean, you're supposed to chop the branch off and drop them into a box, aren't you? I think that's what you do with a swarm. 
but you don't have a box. No, neither do I have protective equipment. No, of course. <laughs> yes, one wouldn't want to argue with a whole swarm of bees. They're fairly defensive. <laughs> Look, they've got used to me. It's, it's so interesting to me to watch them because I can run past the hive with the mower now, right up against it, and they, and don't, they don't bat an eyelid, whereas before they used to go for me. Mm. It's just, it's, you feel a bit ridiculous running through the garden with these tiny little things chasing <laughs> <laughs> I got chased by a, a bee this year at Burnley. That was amazing because we have this, you might remember, beautiful variegated elm. Yes. I mean, normally I don't like variegation, but this, this was a stunning tree about over a century old. And it, uh, in a big storm, it came down and it broke open and there was this huge, uh, you know, that bees, beehive in there. And so they taped it off and it smashed the pergola at Burnley with the beautiful wisteria and sw- crashed into the cork oak. So it was all very spectacular. But I couldn't help myself, you know, in the evening. I thought I'm going to go and have a good sticky beak around this uh, spectacular crash of boughs and branches and, yeah, the bees weren't happy. And this one single bee, it was like being in a cartoon. It was like, I don't know, Roadrunner <laughs> or something. And this one one bee pursued me for about 50 metres and got me. And I thought, wow, they, they don't muck around. It stung you. Yeah, it, got, it wasn't – like I mean, when I was a kid, I was mildly allergic to bees. But this, this was just a mild sting on the back of my hand. I didn't, you know – my lymph glands didn't swell up like they used to when I was a kid. But, yeah, I was I, I full respect to this bee. And so then when the arborists came to t- take the tree down, they, I, I didn't get – I wanted to get footage of this, but I didn't, unfortunately. But the arborists in full bee protection with chainsaws, that was an incredible sight. That would have been amazing, yeah, yes. They look, it looked like, uh, they looked like astronauts with chainsaws. It was really, yeah. And did the bees move? They, um, yeah, they, they, look, we have hives at Burnley, actually, so run by an urban, the urban beekeeper, I think he's called. Actually, I'm not sure what happened to the bees. They, anyway, they, they left. I mean, the tree came down and went, completely went, so sadly. So Maybe an urban beekeeper, maybe he would come and take your bees. Yeah. That would be good. And was, anyone's got a suggestion of who might um, take Craig's bees? I think apiarists are always after new hives. They are. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they do make honey. They're always after putting them at my place, but I won't let them. I've got enough bees, and I don't want more bees competing against. I've got Blue Banded and various yeah. others. I don't want the competition. After my experience, I, I would counsel that you investigate the person who's dropping the hives off at your place <laughs> find out that they're responsible. Because yeah. you've got an abandoned beehive. Well, there was five, th- three of them drowned because he didn't move them out of the travelling cases and they didn't have any drainage. Oh, no. Yeah, which was highly distressing to watch. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the blue-banded bees, Virginia, because when I worked in nature conservation, I went from, you know, which is a horticulturist get employed in doing revegetation and ecological restoration. And so I was in nature conservation for a long time. And, of course, for a lot of ecologists, European honeybees are are bad guys, Mm. right? And, of course, because they're introduced and they compete with indigenous... um, Birds and mammals and invertebrates, and um, but of course, because of the global effort to save bees, bees are of, of course very important. A billion dollars a year contribution of pollination to agriculture, all that stuff. But just recently, I've noticed on social media this trying to remind people again that European honeybees are indeed effectively a domesticated animal, and that they do have these ecological negative ecological consequences. So it's interesting seeing that it's going to start becoming a bit of a debate. I think. Well, one of the reasons I left the tree that um, I've got this big rose that 
um, Ruben's father gave me growing over was because it was it came down and brought a huge amount of clay out of the ground. And I thought, oh, that, that clay will be good for the padlots and it'll be good for the blue-banded right. bees. Because I do always have blue-banded bees. And I just want to encourage any native insect. I'm very loath. I don't spray. I go around killing things, green things with my fingers, which is revolting, <laughs> but it's better than killing bees of any sort Listen, and I, wasps. Every year there's nothing more I love than encouraging students in the veggie plots of Burnley to squash the cabbage white caterpillars. Some can't do it. They just can't. <laughs> they get, they get neighbours to do it for them, so... Absolutely. <laughs> the, 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 when you when you prune the fronds off tree ferns, you, it's always important to leave a stump because the little solitary bees love nesting in them. Do they? Mm-hmm. Now so that you don't I didn't want a know. nice smooth tree fern. You want it covered in stumps. Some stumps. Yeah. Well, because I've got a very big tree fern in my place. Yeah. And I'll you, make sure that I leave them. Yeah. I'm I'm so into insects. I just think we need them so badly. Mm. Yeah. And you know, when we were young. You drive and you get all dead insects on the on the car. Well, you don't anymore. We just don't have enough insects to ruin our windscreens. It is a problem. Strikes me as something yeah. that's really bad. Yeah, people that have bug zappers outside overnight. Yes. What are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Yes, have them when you're there. Turn them off as soon as you're not there. But why do you need them outside? Because mm. of the mosquitoes, of which there are. This year, at oh, least. there's clouds of them. I know. I work with them, but you know, so what? You get bitten. No, <laughs> I don't like being bitten by mosquitoes. Yeah, they I... don't really impact me. I mean, every now and again, one really gets its, you know, probes into you, and it gets a bit itchy. But otherwise, well. mm. but I think I think this is right. You just don't go killing insects all the time. It's just a mistake. Yeah. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward, and with me are Chris Williams, Reuben Neuensteeg, and Craig Wilson. Our talkback line is 94190155, and our text line is 0488809855. And Reuben is our rose expert, and we haven't had a rose expert on the show for a long time, so I hope some of you ring in to ask him a question or three. <laughs> you know... The, the... People ex- have this expectation that everything in their garden must look perfect. And, and as soon as you see an insect, mm. horror, grow for the chemicals. And, and I look at my maples, of which, as you know, I have quite a lot. And a month ago, they are dripping in aphids and the leaves get shrunk and, the, you know, the whole thing looks a bit miserable. And by now, the aphids have gone and the trees are leafing out again without the use of any chemicals at all. And when I say dripping, I mean dripping. Yeah, every stem covered in thick clusters of these little things. Yes, I've noticed they're coming on my roses, but I do go around and squash some of them. Yeah, well, that would be impossible for me. Yes, but but they they go, they disappear, mm. and, and the maples come good. And they are food for other yeah. insects. Mm. You know, we'll get the ladybirds, for example. Absolutely, yeah. they create a, um, a, a an ecological um, uh, equilibrium, don't they? Mm. Mm. And then I have people coming into the nursery. You know, they won't buy a plant because some of the leaves have been chewed. Mm. Um, which is, again, an expectation that's been created because it didn't used to be the case. I mean, you, you would remember years ago you'd go and buy a plant and it would be some manky-looking stem with one leaf on the end of it. 
you'd be quite happy to have it. But these days they have to be perfect. And um, Well, the other problem too is that the effect on the nursery industry of everything having to go out looking perfect means that those things that don't look good in pots are just harder to find nowadays because they, they don't sell well because they don't look good in pots. But I the, don't. My garden isn't made up of pots. It's made the up rose of industry has has very much suffered with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, we all have. The, the nursery industry has has really created plants into products, yeah. into lines, and they they put them in such uh, false environments, and they feed them, and they water them, and they keep them completely protected. Yeah. And uh, and then the home gardener gets these pot that looks amazing, full of color, and they stick it in the garden, and it's it's of course it's just not going to work like that. There's also the, the idea that you have to that when you put something in your garden, you have to have an instant effect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think gardening you need to stand back. Well, we grow things. Yeah, and fail fast. If something doesn't work, it's it might not be you. You know, there's That's three right. scenarios. Firstly, it's the plant, it's the location, or um, or it's it's the weather. Yeah. Or, or, or it's disease plant. So re- remove some of those options. Well, okay, if that plant didn't work, maybe it's the plant. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not you. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. More than likely the plant. And, and, you know, I've been teaching myself to grow indoor plants because, you know, that's what everybody does these days. And I had no idea how to do that. And, and, and you buy these things and they're potted in peat, yeah. pure peat. And, and it, it is almost impossible to dry out. Yeah, and then and then they'll a person first starts with a, an indoor plant, and they blame themselves, and then it dies, and they think, oh, I don't, I can't grow plants. But I, I, I'm also a chef, so I, I cook a lot, and I sometimes teach cooking. And people will get a cookbook, and they'll go through the recipe and the ingredients and the method, and they create something. It might not be perfect, but they create something. People don't do that with gardening. People don't look at a book and go. Oh, okay. What does this need? Well, let's try it again. You know, it didn't work. Okay, let's start again. It's, this is a very interesting discussion, I must say, because teaching students to um, mainly work in residential horticulture, I guess traditionally uh, gardeners blame themselves. In other words, if there's a shift in the culture that they expect the perfect product from the nursery, once upon a time people would, if the plant didn't work, they would blame themselves. Then they go back to the nursery to seek all the probably unnecessary inputs to make it work. What do I have to spray? Yeah, I saw a bug. Um, and so in some ways, I mean, maybe maybe if there's better customer expectations, that's good on the one hand. But, I, but, I, but also I think having gardens that had problems was actually part of the culture, if you see what I mean. People liked liked thinking, oh, I have to, you know, fussing over the individual specimen, right? That was yeah. a, that's a big part of... Because I know, you know, I used to uh, work with Hendrik van Leeuwen from Van Leeuwen Green, which is a residential horticulture company, and I used to see Hendrik in action with what we used to call old eastern suburbs clients, and they were really up for a chat. They'd be like, oh, I think this you pruned this too hard, Hendrik, but, you know, do I need to do anything now to make it rejuvenate? And people would know the species in their garden. They would know that Viburnum tinus or, you know, always got got attacked, yep. right? So I think that knowledge, that, that, that's... That having people who had some knowledge or even family history of gardening, even if they sort of overthought it, that's died off a bit. I don't think there's as many knowledgeable gardeners out there. I don't know. Discussion point for talkback. No, absolutely, hundred percent correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what one of the reasons for that is the drought. I think people. I mean, it was such a long mm. drought. It was such a hard drought that people did give up. Yeah, but it's also the rise of the big players and the big production nurseries yeah. over mm-hmm. little people like me. Mm. 
Um, yeah. and then they just pump out what what's convenient for them to grow and what's, and looks going, good what's going to look good at point of sale rather than what's going to do well in someone's garden. That's a, a perfect point you made. Point of sale. Yeah. That's mm. it. And uh, yeah, that's just it's just not going to happen in a garden. A, a garden is is balanced, and and you can't put these varieties that are so cultivated and think you're going to have it looking like a nursery. We have a rose core, oh. which is wonderful. Thelma, good morning. Oh, good morning. How are you all? We're good. Good, thank you. What I'm ringing up for, Reuben, are you the son of John? I am. Oh, oh famous dear. naughty man your father is. <laughs> He comes down to the Lee and Gasser Rose show and he says, Righto, Selma, what have you misnamed this time? <laughs> and usually he finds something, Reuben. It's really quite upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> he is such a cheeky, cheeky man, your dad. I am a collector of Alistair Clark roses, which is why I think he picks on me. Yes, okay. Yep. Yeah. And at the moment, I have some absolute. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful roses on Black Boy and Gwen Nash. And I just am in total awe of that man, Alistair Clark. How how many different varieties and sizes and uh, colours that he managed to create. Absolutely. Just just so all the listeners know, Alistair Clark was a rose breeder who uh, lived in Tullamarine on a, uh, a farm called, a property called Glenara. And he bred roses for Australian conditions. And, um, and some very classic roses, Liz Lorraine Lee and Black Boy, as, as the listener um, called. It's, it, the roses really do see, suit Australian conditions. They really do. So they love the dry, they love the wet, and they, they just thrive. And, um, and they get big. Some of these, some of these yes, roses get really big. But that, that's the wording. They <laughs> have got very big. Some of them. Yeah, yeah. But if you've got the space <laughs> yeah. for them, absolutely, they're they're stunning. Well, exactly right. Mm-hmm. And the um, Gwen Nash, I think, has got a, a trail out about eight feet. And the other day, it was just total in in flower. It was the most spectacular sight. And on the other side of the gazebo, I've got Glenara. And you look out the back door at the colour of that. It's just spectacular. It's, what I really wanted to ask you, Ruben, a bit of dieback. How, how will I deal with that, please? Dieback in branches? Yes, yep. Um, just cut that thing off. And if, just, if, if yeah. the variety is old, then then grab a new variety and uh, of the same type and, and put it somewhere else in the garden so you've got it. Yeah. I think this is important with all plants is that we, we, we understand that they're not meant to be eternal. You know, a plant needs to grow. It does have a lifespan and, and they do die and they do get old and particularly cultivated varieties. Alistair Clark was a brilliant breeder. But again, they are cultivated varieties. They're closer to the species, um, but they're still a cultivated variety so they're not going to last forever. That's a bit sad. Now you've, now you've ruined me someday. <laughs> it's and not sad at all. It means that you can uh, change your garden. It can evolve and you can have <laughs> no, a new no, no, variety. I no, I want Alistair Clark. <laughs> well, there's so many no. Alistair Clarks. That you, if you found a love for one, I'm sure um, you can have that one somewhere else in the garden and, uh, and put a new I've Alistair about, Clark in. I've got about 25 of them, Ruben. Oh, so, that's, that's a good yeah. collection. No, I have. I've got a fabulous collection. I really, yeah, I'm re- really very proud of them. And I think... Daydream would have 
to be my favourite. Yes, it is just the most softest, beautiful, beautiful rose. In fact, um, I, I took a bunch a few years back into the rose show and everybody was just in total awe of it. It's just absolutely spectacular. And I must admit, there was one red rose I had there one year. Your father walked in after he'd had a go at me, and I didn't have Felix. He was right. It wasn't Australian Felix. It was this other rose plant. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> well, apparently everybody gets confused. They're so, so similar, and I had I had the wrong one. So it wasn't Alistair Clark's Australian Felix. But I had this red rose this year, and he just said to me, Thelma, that should have got the best in, in show, but some people just don't realise what, what you've put up. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, he can be nice to me. <laughs> he is cheeky. He's very cheeky. So, Ruben, whereabouts do do you go now? Because your uncle's not really into the Alistair Clarks anymore. Whereabouts do you go to get a variety of, of Alistair Clark roses now? I mean, I sell them online. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. If you're after particular varieties, roses really um, post so well. Um, there's quite a few rose nurseries that do grow uh, different varieties that'll post happily. And, and we have quite a big collection of um, wild roses. And so, Ruben, what's your online address? It is www.wildrosenursery.com.au. So that's quite so easy, I, Thelma. Wildrosenursery.com.au. When I came across your name, I went, oh, I know that name, and I looked you up, and I've pressed join, and I've pressed follow, and I've, I've done everything Wonderful. now. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite proud of our family history. We've got a, a lot of people in the nursery, and it goes back generations. So Yes, I think, uh, yeah. I think you should be very, very proud of what your father has, has done, um, you know, to create all these Alistair Clark roses again. I just think it's yeah, very because it's so important to make sure those sort of roses don't disappear, Thelma, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. It's our heritage. Mm. It is our heritage, and that's yeah, exactly right. And that's why I said to the Langatha Rose Show they must have an Australian section next year. You know that, that you've got to dedicate and, and very good yeah, idea. Very good. Now, Thelma, would you when? When we finish on air, would yes. you give Doug your phone number off air oh, okay. yes. so, so that I can contact you? Oh, okay, lovely. Yes, yep, yep, I will do that. Fantastic. Thank Thanks yes. very much, Lo- John. Thanks, Lovely well. to have a chat. Thank Say you. hello to your cheeky dad. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye, Thelma. Well, that was, that was good. Yes, John is a very well-known person because I originally met John well no I first met John because I came to the nursery uh, and then I met him because he was on the board of plant trust yeah he he spent a lifetime in plants his father my opera as well um, grew buxus and roses and mushrooms in Holland and uh, yeah goes back several generations so Mm. it's um yeah it's it's actually and one of our listeners has um texted in be rescue mm-hmm. is the people to contact. All right. So be rescue. Be rescue. So that's a that's a good thought. Mm-hmm. That might that might help us as well. Now, who's got a plant for me to talk about? Chris, you've bought a whole box. I, I have, and um, sort of bought for choice. I guess I've got. They're all uh, edibles of one sort or another. 
Um, What's the big tall dark Yeah, the big tall one, one that's the so-called cranberry hibiscus. So hibiscus acetacella. So it's a and it could oh I might even um, pass a leaf or two around for everyone here. Um, it's got it's got a very interesting sour taste. Uh, most hibiscus actually are edible, believe it or not. Including the natives, the yes. aleogeny, yep. the aleogoin, yep. absolutely, the... absolutely, syriacus, is for sure. Okay. Um, used as uh, you know, sort of survival food in China. But anyway, um, so it's a. Sorry, that's me reaching over, folks. <laughs> now, this is this is one that needs to, maybe from the top, but it's uh, have a have a bite. Thank you. And. Uh, I'm just taking the tip. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, take the tip. Totally. Thank you. It almost looks like shiso. It does. And what's the flower like? It's got a beautiful uh, cranberry coloured flower. Too sour? Oh, it's sour. Mm. Mm. Really? Mine was not. Mm. I got an older leaf than you, I think. Everyone can hear us chewing now. Mm. Um, Delightful sound on radio. No, that was very mild, yeah. But... um, Interestingly enough, the green version of this, which sounds strange, a green version of cranberry hibiscus, right? It, what I've noticed is it flowers um, in April in Melbourne, so you do get these beautiful flowers, whereas this one, unfortunately, gets absolutely zapped even, even in the warm parts of the city around May when it wants to flower. So it grows absolutely... What bru- gets zapped by the cold. By the cold, exactly. So... This is a perennial. I bought this originally from Isabel Shippard, who was a famous herbal herbalist in Queensland and had a nursery, still going, but she, she died, unfortunately. Um, so this is, I think it's a fantastic edible, really nice in, um, uh, you know, cooked or in salads. And um, so it loves the heat, grows prolifically in summer and very, only very rarely over winter. So you have to perennialise it by taking cuttings in late summer or autumn. So I've kept- And that's in Melbourne? And even that's in Melbourne. So, yeah. but none of us could grow it. Because... Well, you could grow it in your in the growing season, but just don't expect it to survive. So that's a bit disappointing. Um, but so easy to strike from cuttings. And what colour are the flowers? Um, yeah, sort of reddy, cranberry coloured. Oh, how divine! Yeah, no, they're beautiful. But um, so yeah, this has become one of my favourites actually. And I mean, it grows you know to about metre and a half, two metres tall in a, in a in a standard Melbourne summer down and here. And what's its its proper name? Hibiscus acetacella, which refers to the vinegar um, flavour. So cranberry hibiscus. Cranberry hibiscus. So thoroughly, and so it's become a little bit more available online now. It was super obscure when I got it from Isabella or Isabel, but now um, you can buy it online from Dailies in Northern New South Wales and from Green Harvest in Mullaney. Uh, and maybe maybe Bolin Art and Garden sell it. Should check, folks. Hmm. So it might be available retail in Melbourne too, at least there. Because so, I have to say it is a very pretty plant. And this one's, you know, looking a bit, it's just recovering from being in one of my polytunnels at Burnley over winter where they do survive. It looks less pretty now I've busted the top. Indeed. <laughs> That's pruning. Pruning, of course. <laughs> yeah, tipping. Now I have a question online. Can you rejuvenate a rose that has almost been taken over by shoots originating from below the graft or does it just have to go to heaven it's a very old rose no idea of the name well this is a problem um when when we make cuttings we eye them out so we take all the buds off uh, below say maybe one or two of the at the top and then we stick the bud in and then we cut the top off 
And the reason those shoots that we leave is just to get the sap flow going so we can stick a bud in. And so they really, really shouldn't uh, sucker. If they do sucker, you don't cut them off. You pull them off. So you twist and they should break off. Um, ideally, they shouldn't come anyway, but this, this is how you deal with um, suckers. If the sucker bush has really taken over, there's not much you can do. Really not. You, you should just get rid of it. So it's from Sue? Yeah, unfortunately. So Sue should actually... If the, if the suckers have really taken over, you could try and dig down and cut it off or bust them off or pull them off. Um, but if, if they've really taken over the last two or three years, uh, then then they... Um... I've got a big Just Joey in that's been in for years. Yeah. And this year it's suckered for the first time. Wow, that's interesting. Which I'm very irritated by. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, Just Joe is a really popular um, favourite rose and lots of people will come to me and say, my grandmother had a Just Joey and, and I, I want to get a, a Just Joey. And, um, uh, the, these varieties are getting really weak. They really are. It's like driving a 1970s Ford Falcon in 2020. They're, they're just not strong anymore. And uh, so I'm not very popular probably in the rose industry because these varieties, although people are still growing them, people are still asking for them, they, um, they're, they're really not uh, as vigorous as they were. And more to the point, there are such fantastic new varieties out um, that are just, just so superior to those varieties, even when they were strong. Um, we grow a lot of new varieties. I grow those ones as well, just Joey. And, and, but... Um, yeah, if if you after a beautiful modern rose like that, really go down the modern new varieties. Yeah, and do you think that in the breeding they are more careful? <clears throat> Absolutely, because uh, the rose industry is 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 big business. Yeah, the David Austins, you've got um, Cordis, um, corporate roses, Milan roses. Uh, there's there's Delbards. There's a lot of breeders out there, and they're really striving. <clears throat> for great varieties. We had um, actually Bruce Brundrett died uh, last week, who was a, a famous, oh, not famous, he's, he's really, really well-known um, Australian rose breeder. And he's bred some absolutely stunning varieties. He really has. And uh, so I'd be replacing these varieties. I really would. With mm. uh, if, if that's the sort of roses you're after, yeah, I'd be going some new varieties and just, just leave those ones from the, the 70s to the, the, the 20s. Um, yeah. Ruben, are they, when you say they're getting weak, do you mean <clears throat> over time the clones are getting sort of low-level viruses? Yeah. Or so, something, you know, I mean, this yeah. is a perfect example because the mm. sucker has taken over. Mm. So that shows you how strong these species varieties are. You know, they, 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 this is really where we need to head. And uh, there's a new variety called um, Eye of the Tiger. Oh, I love that. This is I've a perfect that. example. It's a beautiful it's rose. It's a beautiful rose, but it's also beautiful because it's got its vigor and it's so unique. But what they've done, they've taken a, a modern rose and they've grabbed a species. I can't remember what species it is. And they've bred the two together. So you have this vigor of this new species with the, the, the work that humans have done the last 150 years to make it uh, flower lots and, and more compact, I suppose. And There's yeah. a few, isn't there? There's, there's um, eyes for you, eye of the tiger. There's a hot Yeah, they'll have to remove the eyes at some point because mm. they're going to run out of them. Um, yeah, but they, they're just beautiful. They're fabulous. Yeah, they're, they're fabulous. Exciting, yeah. An exciting rose. Yeah, but, but that's, that shows you how the, the gene pool of the roses – all these modern roses only um, are from about 15% of the species collection. So the, where the scope is going to go, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable. This is one species added to 
the modern collection of roses and look what we've gotten from that so any breeder i would just i i I think the best path would be grab some of these old species and work with them so you're getting the best of both worlds i I still don't quite grasp how it weakens oh well easily as it's a copy of a copy of a copy Okay, so but I mean, firstly, I can I can propagate off plants ad infinitum, and they're, they're the same. I think to understand it, you have to understand how um, far down the evolutionary chain these modern roses are. That they have been bred and bred and bred and cultivated and hybridized mm-hmm. so much that even a rose from the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties are so distant from a species rose mm. that they're just weak. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose the comparison would be with cultivated agricultural crops, where over time they become dependent on inputs like fertilizer and pesticides. But I mean, a Granny Smith, for example, is still a clone from 150 years ago and fine. So I guess it depends on the. But yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're breeding for traits, you know, when you're breeding, any trait that you want is a trade off with something. So you know, another trait might have been resistance to heavy soils let's take the granny smith for instance okay so if you've got an orchard um Mm. you've you've decked it out in granny smiths now in 15 years time you might put another orchard in of granny smiths again yeah right with let's just say just joey you've bred every year it's another copy another copy and, uh, and and that's why it's it's just multiplied so many times so you mean not even not even just budding not even just taking the existing um, we're getting into the weeds here, so yeah, to speak. <laughs> but it's interesting. So you mean people are still constant? They're still what cross crossing the original species to produce? No, no, no. no, 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 no it's sorry. all clones, right? It's yeah. all cuttings. It's all buds. It's it's all budded. Budded. So yeah. let's let's just say we're talking yeah. about Josh Jerry. So let's mm. take Josh Jerry for instance. Um, uh, when it was bred, mm. that plant was distributed around yeah. to growers and. We would grow it, and we might have a few stock plants, but these plants don't last forever. A rose, you know, a, a yeah. modern rose like that, the best is maybe 10, 15 years for those varieties. And so you're constantly updating your own stock plant, and then you're taking buds from that plant. And so it's just it's just over a period of time. I mean, we're we're in twenty twenty. It's sure. it's been around a long time, and and we just can't imagine that that variety that's been cultivated is going to have the vigor. It's just not. Yeah, it's interesting. I know. I, I look, the only thing I know about is sweet potatoes, where you get a you know there's thousands of varieties across the planet, and what happens is they tend to get um, so they're they're mostly cultivated by well ninety five percent by cutting, so asexually, vegetatively. Yeah. And over time, they do pick up viruses, right? So they lose vigor. That's, so yeah, that's the, yeah. the the key is the asexual reproduction. Yeah. And of course, the, the other thing that is actually possibly a problem is the banana. Oh, well, that's just that's, for, that's, that's for, a catastrophe, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Luckily, there's still um, some wild bananas there are. around. Well, because mm. you know, evolution it, of banana. The, the bananas evolved in Melanesia. That's where it was in Papua New Guinea where they first cultivated bananas almost certainly we know now explain why bananas have become a problem because we're we're the globally we're so dependent on cavendish um clones that have very little genetic um variation and so they're just susceptible to any uh disease that pops up and decides to attack them so i think it was the, the panama fungus is the one they're terrified of so it, it means that we, we we don't have rather than eating uh you know 
six, 10, 15, 20 different varieties of bananas with their own inherent genetic diversity. We're just dependent on on one. So it's, it's very similar to what happened to the potato. Yeah, basically. In, in, Ireland, in, the 19th, yeah. in Ireland in the 1840s and onwards. So you have very few types, they're all closely related. And so when, so, you, when you get Phytophthora going through um, or the, uh, you know, the blight, they, it all just gets wiped out and a million people start Was to the potato blight a, fl- a Phytophthora? Uh, I think I might have just... Just told a lie. <laughs> just told a lie. A it's it, Yes, a but, it, but, but it's a... Um, either way, it was one either variety. Way, it, whereas, of course, in the centre of origin in the Andes, you have um, hundreds of varieties, yeah. right? And, of course, there are still fewer people living in Ireland today than there were before the famine. Mm. That's right. Which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, it's... it's yeah. Wow. I mean, it's funny. I'm actually, I'm actually rereading the history of the potato at the moment. So, um, really, um, yeah, the biography of the spud. It's an amazing book. Yeah. I, I, I know of, a, of something about potatoes. I would like to know if this is mm. true, about mm. the fact that they got these potatoes over and they planted them and they had the berries... Because it's a nightshade, it's a yes, and they fed the berries to a royal family, and they got sick, and then the the, the royals ordered these to be pulled up, and they found the potatoes. Is this just um, a, an urban myth, or it's funny? I haven't heard that, but it's certainly true that there was a lot of suspicion of potatoes and tomatoes when they first came to Europe. So the um, because they were in the nightshade family, they were already looked on as potentially poisonous, which technically they are. Do you know roughly what sort of year they came to Europe? Yeah, so the fifteen um, late sixteenth century. Mm. So it took one hundred and fifty years for them to become acceptable food. What did the Italians eat before tomatoes? So, exactly, but then <laughs> on the but so there's so many things backstories if you like of mm-hmm. all these. Plants because what what did um, people use in, in, in India and Southeast yeah, Asia? Well, there were chilies, yeah. right? So they're, yeah. they're absolutely because I mean, the chili comes from South America, that's yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you cannot imagine India without chili. No, it's it's. I mean, there were other or things, Indonesia other for that matter. There are lots of spices, obviously. So I just think it's it's fascinating thinking of thinking of these things. But yes, with potatoes, there was also um, you know in the 1600s there was this doctrine of signatures. So if if walnuts look like brains, therefore eating walnuts is good for your oh, brains. Yes. So potatoes allegedly look like the tubers look gnarly, like someone who might have had leprosy. So there was kind of a connotation. So, yes, the, the uptake of potatoes was, was actually very much an elite top-down thing. When, 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 people re- when certain people realised, okay, this thing can feed millions of peasants... It was like a proper social engineering project. Let's get poor people to eat these things so I we mean, can take their wheat, wheat and, ex- and export Take it. their barley, yes. mm. Potatoes were very... Sorry, I need to interrupt. Uh, potatoes were very poisonous. And I, th- I believe the original potatoes, um, that's what they made the Mayan pyramids for, is that they would um, lay the potatoes on top of the pyramids overnight and the cold would uh, squash out all the, of the toxins. There's a there's a product they still make in the Andes, which you know further south, obviously that that is all is about sticking out mushed potatoes overnight to create a, a, a product that is less toxic and and obviously you can store. So, yeah, and they would pound them into a and, flour. And the yeah. other thing about the famine to remember mm. in Ireland is that. This, the potato blight hit a number of other European places, countries, but none of them had a famine. The famine was actually engineered by the Brits. The, the lessons are there that we, we need these cultivations, we need these varieties. We, well, there is, there is an absolute drive at the moment to find wild versions yes, of everything. Yes. You know, like in Iceland, they're finding all the wild versions of the brassicas. Yep, yep. Because they've, you know, because... 
we, we're going to have to be breeding things mm. that... I watched a documentary on, on the chickpea and it, it took them almost two years to find one chickpea plant in uh, Afghanistan. One, it is phytophthora. I had that right. I phytophthora. Knew it phytophthora infestans, yes. Now, can I just... Now, well, I'm sitting here quietly hoping that this will happen to evergreen magnolias. <laughs> <laughs> You wish them all gone, do you? Like the one you chopped down in my place. (laughs) As in my Keely adult sofa, is it? You don't know? Oh, awful trees. Yeah, yeah. No, that was Little gem. Oh, yeah. Little gem. I like like Magnolia Grandiflora, though. Absolutely. In the right context. Yes, yeah. In the right context. It's a very good um, tree. I remember at Burnley in the 90s that that, um, James Hitchmore, who's actually out at the moment, I think, floating around Australia somewhere, but he used to make... He used to say that... um, my Keely Adult Soap, and I've actually forgotten its common name. So, um, was going to be people were trying to promote it as the the silver birch of the, uh, and he said it's not going to work. And sure enough, it didn't. It never really took off. Oh, they're scrappy looking things. Yeah, although they'd be loving this wet. I think within reason they'll probably be looking pretty lush for the next year after all these two two or three wet years in a row. But they don't make a nice shape. No, they're they all sort of fall out <laughs> of, of, of the, the canopy and back know. back to the rain. We have a question, and I suspect the answer is going to be rain. Why are the buds of my just joey drooping and the stem dying back? Great discussion, thanks, Joe from Frankston. Hi, Joe. Um, again, it's just joey. <laughs> it's just joey. <laughs> it's just joey. Um, but I think lots of buds are just not coping with the amount of rain. Look. Uh, I, I, I want to, um, yeah, disagree with you there. Okay. I really do. Yeah, it's uh, roses. Look, we were in quite a drought a few years ago, and uh, and something that I wish the rose society really pushed is how drought tolerant roses are. Um, most plants in in dry conditions will continue to try and grow, but a rose is a, is a goes into dormancy, so it'll just stop growing altogether. And and they can last ages without water, a long, long time. And once it war- uh, once the rain comes again, they start growing again. But to answer this question, I would say that it's probably maybe pruning. Could it have been pruned back a little bit hard so the growth has really pushed up and that's become quite fragile? They've put all their energy into just a few branches and, uh, and, and maybe they're just a little bit waterlogged. Those branches, I, I, I'm, yeah. Unless I look at it, I probably wouldn't know. But yeah, again, the variety is just—it's a weak variety. Now, can we just go back to the suckers? Because Helen's rung in and said, "I walked out of the room just as you were talking about suckers. How do I remove suckers it, it, above and below?" Yeah, well, um, above, above, no, above and below the ground. Right. Sorry. Okay. Cool. So, uh, just again, quickly. So you you dig down to where the the sucker is and you pull it out or cut it out, you really, yeah. But you would rather break it off than cut it off. Breaking it off is better because it kind of pulls out the entire eye. It it damages all the buds around the cambium of the sucker so that they don't reshoot it. That's right, yeah. 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 But it was so interesting what you said before, how your Just Joey has has put out... uh, For the first time in 10 years. Yeah, which, again, shows you how incredibly strong these species are. uh, Well, I cut down, when I moved into my house 17 years ago... I cut down a bougainvillea because it was right by the door and we all know they've got the biggest thorns on them. And they've got 100 of them. It went 10 years later. It came back. Yeah. 10 years. It was working mm-hmm. in that 10 years. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been fighting with Camellia japonica too for 20 years, still shooting. 
But we, we, we maybe need to change our idea on gardening. That these, I remember seeing on the notice board Acanthus mollus. Okay, you know, I actually love acanthus. Oh, I think look, it's a beautiful and thing. And the whole notice board were, were up in arms. How to get rid of this thing? How to remove it? And I do this, and I, I I put petrol on it, and you know, I put blankets on it, and I'm thinking, oh god, the the thing's beautiful green leaves, shiny, <laughs> comes up with flowers, it disappears. What 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 do you want? <laughs> you, you need to deadhead it so that it doesn't self seed all over. The you don't need to prune it. You just cut the, those flower heads off, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's all. Yeah. You know, but it's such a beautiful, strong and plant. It, it doesn't have the invasive capacity that say agapanthus, agapanthus yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just such an amazing, wonderful plant. I think we need to with these varieties that we're struggling to control. Let's not control them. Let's yeah. let's let's work with those varieties. You plant a canthus with um, persicaria red dragon, fantastic combination Stunning, yeah. in the shade. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then the ground opens up over winter, loses its leaves, and yeah. Now the other other question, Michael from Forest Hill wants to know what sort of gloves do you use for your pruning, as you must do so oh, much of it. Dear, I look. Um, I did a pruning demonstration uh, two weeks ago, and uh, I think the whole crowd and uh, and a few rose growers were horrified when I pulled out the hedge trimmer. <laughs> Honestly, brilliant. Honestly, what what yeah. like getting in there with 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 secateurs and pulling out these, you know, little branches here and there. It's it's not going to make much difference in summer. Well, those little yeah. steel chainsaws would be good too. The, I've got a little electric uh, hedge trimmer, and uh-huh. it, it gets a, it gets a really good workout. Uh-huh. So um, that would be my argument to gloves. But, but on yeah. pruning, yeah, in Britain, which are completely they're absolutely obsessed with roses and known for their roses. Yes. And in Britain, it gets very, very cold, and yeah. the roses don't like extreme cold. So if you prune them very hard and you cover them with mulch or whatever, with straw, you help them get through. Yeah, we're talking very, very different climates. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. we still have this we thing have this about idea. pruning yep. roses really hard. Absolutely. If you've got a rose that's 10 years old and it's the same height, you're pruning wrong. Honestly, the things need to get bigger. They, that's that's how they work. It's really difficult to explain how to prune because the the very quick answer is is uh, you know every year you're taking off a, a one third or one quarter and and you're sort of fluctuating between that. But you got to go back to why we're pruning. So a tree grows from a single stem. It's got a it's got a trunk. It's like the freeway for for the nutrients to go up to the smaller branches. But a rose doesn't work like that. Its purpose is to flower. So it's going to put up one branch, two branches. Those branches don't get bigger over years, or not not a lot anyway. the The main idea is that they don't have these freeway ideas, but they've got single roads leading to other roads to flowers. And you want to remove the older branches, and so you have nice, thick, good sized branches. So it's, yeah. it's a matter of removing the old canes. It's it's it's. Making the roads, I'm going back to the analogy of roads, making the roads clearer, mm-hmm. right? So removing lots of lots of corners and branches and crossing over. It's just about creating more of an, yeah. But and if, which keeps the air in the middle of the rose, which helps it with some of the problems of a wet year, for yeah, example. But, but again, we go back, sorry, just interrupt, to go mm-hmm. back to the uh, these, these beautiful new varieties that are being bred, um, they're... they're, they're they're really amazing. You do just trim them with a hedge trimmer. You don't get in there with secateurs. So to answer the gloves, uh, I, I, I don't wear gloves much at all. 
But who picks up the, the prunings after you've been... <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, a pitchfork, a pitchfork and welding gloves. Okay. Yeah. Welding, welding gloves, gloves are amazing. So it. there we go, there's the answer, welding gloves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm Virginia Hayward, and you're listening to the 3CR Garden Show. With me are Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, Chris, Chris Williams from Burnley College, and Ru, Ruben Neuensteg from Wild Rose Nurseries. We need to work on that last name. Neuensteg. Neuensteg. Yeah. It's, so it's, I'm doing It looks steed. much more difficult than it is. It's Neuensteg. Yeah. Unless you're in another country, then it's Neuensteg or something. Uh, so like what is the correct Dutch pronunciation? Uh, I'm going to go with Australian. Uh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. That's yeah. the hardest accent to impersonate. Sorry, that's a Dutch. Dutch. So yeah, hard. it sounds very angry sometimes. It does. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Well, a lot. Of, if you get a lot of Dutch people together, they seem to all talk in very loud voices, <laughs> which makes them sound angry. It's a, it's a beautiful and interesting culture. Now I have another question here. I recently visited the Mornington Botanical Rose Garden and saw an unusual climbing rose called Soaring Spirits. Is anyone familiar with this particular rose? And that's from Susie. No, I don't know it. I'm sorry. Soaring no. spirits. Soaring spirits at the Mornington. Okay. Mornington Peninsula. So, listeners, if any of you know Soaring Spirits, a rose climber. They do a really great job, by the way, in the, that, in the Mornington Rose Garden. It's really beautiful. I went there a few few months ago. And just, yeah. Whereabouts is it? <laughs> Mornington. I, I, Mornington. <laughs> that's as, as, well, as good as I know. Yeah. Are oh, you looking it up? I am. Nothing like yeah. a little bit of technology. Yeah. So many through. new varieties are coming out all the time. Now, yeah. Craig, I can just see over the console a really pretty little pale blue flower. Oh, this is the one that you wanted me to bring in, Mimura amethystina. I'd never heard of it. It's from northeastern Spain. It's described. So that's the, the wet... The, probably the last of the sort of delicate spring flowering bulbs... Um, the flowers are amethyst blue, aren't they? Yeah. It's 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 a the tube is is a quite a deeper blue, and then it flares out with a pale blue around the edge of it. It's small, and as small it would but be ever so pretty. Fifteen centimeters. The, the the you know the the bulb enthusiasts would yawn and say that common old thing, but <coughs> for the uninitiated, it, it is quite you know, extraordinary. I think, and could you tell us the name again and maybe spell it? Brimura, B-R-I-M-E-U-R-A, <laughs> Amethystina, as an amethyst with an I-N-A on the end. And the northeast of Spain is cool and cool and moist, I think, if my geography serves me correctly. It looks beautiful. Um, so that's the sort of conditions it would like. It would need to go in deep which is people probably get bored with me saying that because I always say it with bulbs. Oh, you should say it with most things. Plant plant deep. Plant deep, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, it'll work itself out. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, what I find with the bulbs is that every time I repot them, the bulbs have always pulled themselves to the bottom of the pot. Mm. They like to get down deep. Yeah, there is so much to learn about bulbs. It's a whole other world, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all about soil temperature. Right, okay. Yeah, so yeah, that if yeah. you get them down deep, you have consistency yeah. of soil temperature and it's not going to warm up over their dormancy, which is what they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then, look, it is astonishing how what they can push through. Yeah. And the other thing that happens with bulbs, if, if you have them too shallow, 
<coughs> they push themselves out. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that, that's the little the bulbals that develop around the main bulb push themselves up to the surface. Yeah. yeah. And another one, Greg? Look, I, I had two customers come in during the week who wanted something bright and colourful to plant in the shade. And, I mean, it, it takes me quite a lot of strength to prevent myself from rolling my eyes because bright and colourful is associated with sunshine. Yeah. And the shade garden is really something quite different. Um, it's about texture, it's about form, and it's about subtlety. So if you want something bright and colourful for the shade, you're probably better to go and buy a sculpture or <laughs> something yeah, loud and then, and then put some nice plants around it that are going to flourish there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. And a blisk, you know, and paint it a, yeah. a gaudy kind of light blue. And but it also yeah. brings up another fact about the shade garden is that it's talked about endlessly what you can grow in the shade, what grows in dry shade. And with all the talk, there is never a mention of soil improvement. Mm. And I firmly believe that in the shade, you are growing plants which have evolved to grow in a forest. And the floor of a forest is full of humus. Yeah. Deep, deep, thick humus, wood and leaves and twigs. And not necessarily moist, but rich. I think you're bringing up a good point. Um, As driving over here, um, all the samphire, you've seen the, uh, not samphire, sorry, salsify. Yep. Yeah, salsify. It's a big dandelion kind of heads and... um, I learnt uh, not long ago is they really love hard clay soils. And I'm thinking about it, and they, they grow a good metre and a half high. Um, the roots, mind you, you can eat. Yeah, yeah. They taste similar to um, Bernoir. It's a bit like Salsify, right? Salsify. Is the, How did even, I say is even, no, You did say that, right? Salsify. Sorry, but I mean, that's salsify. the, that's the pro, that's, yeah, that is the product. You can eat the salsify root. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's related to schools and era. I use it on that? a mushroom soup, actually. Yeah. yeah, and just grind it like a microplane. Um, but this is brilliant to break up clay soils because, well, firstly, they need that clay so they can stand up that high. It's never going to work in, in sand to be a metre and a half high. Um, yeah, but this is this is my thing. I go back to the rose gardens. Is people are creating rose gardens and they're just one bed full of one variety, and it's not it's not really a garden. I mean, it's beautiful. I I, I see it. It's done and it's done and it's done, but. Um, roses want to be involved with other plants, and and this is a rose I got <coughs> Xanthina. The most so, beautiful color. Oh, isn't it stunning? Yeah. This is I, I remember this one as a, as a little child actually. Um, it, it was maybe six or seven meters high, this large branch, and it's the first flower that comes out very early spring. So there's no leaves on the plant. There's just these red branches. This is not a good uh, example. But these bright yellow leaf uh, um, flowers, and uh, yeah, this is a forest rose. You know, so it's a shade shade plant. Shade, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And to, to understand to how to incorporate these varieties, yeah. and uh, yeah, and, and it, you're opening up your whole garden scheme to this 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 new idea, and yeah, yeah. So so the shade. To me, it is about soil improvement to get plants to grow. Mm. And, and for example, if, if you are growing clivia in the shade, as you do, then you will find that the roots run under the mulch. They don't go down deep. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So, and they're a shade plant. <laughs> I mean, they, they grow under trees, so the soil underneath is taken up mm. with tree root. So they move under the mulch, and that that's the case with so many shade plants. So and that they're actually very shallow rooted. Shallow and rooted, and 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 what you need to do if you want to have a vibrant shade garden is improve the soil constantly. Yeah. Now that is very beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. So this is Gallica violencia, and this is high as it, as high as it grows. That's it. Oh, that's the perfect height. That's it. So yeah. it, now, how high we're, we're, are we describing? We're looking at maybe a foot and a half. Sorry, people can't see on radio. No. Oh, right. Yeah. So not from the floor up, but from that's, you up. So no, 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 no. From the from the ground. Yes, but oh, that's from the ground up. That's from the ground that's up. It, that's it. Yeah, wow. <coughs> and so it'll put out one branch or two branches a year. So it'll it'll put one branch off that, and that's it. And that's, that's a shade plant. That well, no. This is this this actually likes a bit of bit of sun. Okay. It'll tolerate actually a bit of shade. This yeah. this is actually growing under a um a magnolia at my place. So. We don't do tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> well, look uh, again. I'm, I'm I'm harping on about the species roses, but yeah. they will they'll grow where they are. So if it, if it, it's not going to just not grow in a in a in a um, shaded position, mm. it just changes its format. It'll but just will be it perform. It'll perform fine. Okay. It'll perform fine. It'll just be different. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, take David Austin's for instance. David Austin's is a, a brilliant rose breed. I'm sure everyone knows. Um, so he took the Floribunda style with the hyper perpetuals and made this kind of David Austin esque shrub rose. Um, but if you put them in Australian conditions, these things get big. You know, and and you're talking before how cold mm. the environment is in in England. It changes the rose. It it really does. So when when they're in Australian conditions. It, it changes how it's going to be. Yeah. Absolutely. We've got another message here. Chris, five plus years ago, I was lucky enough to be part of an open day guided visit to your edible patch at Burnley. It was brilliant and it opened my eyes to urban horticulture. Subsequently, I bought some of your excess plants at the Burnley Friends sale. Many of these have been eaten out by possums, rats, and they've died out. When and where can these be obtained again? Thanks, Philip. Wow. Oh, that, that, that's Philip, is it? Mm. Hi, Philip. Um, I think um, – I'm actually sorry. I'm just stopping to think when that when the sale was. But anyway, I'm sure that, that happened. Um, yeah. Look, I do give some of my plants to the friends again. So um, they'll probably have their last big sale in December. So I'll make sure – I haven't been directly ordered by them to cultivate stuff this year, but I will – Put a bunch of my stuff in there. So, in other words, look out for the next plant sale of the Friends of the Burnley Gardens, either December or the first one in the new year. And thank, thanks for that comment. That's uh, I'm, I'm glad. So, so, go to the website for Friends of Burnley. Friends Garden. of Burnley Gardens. Mm. Yeah, I Which think. Which is F O F O B G. F O B G. Um, I actually, I have a th- yeah. Some of those edibles are here today, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I'm very curious about the lily. Mm. So, no, that 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 that's lily, not edible. That is, it's not a lily. It's an Abyssinian banana. Speaking right. of bananas okay. earlier, because arum lily is quite poisonous, isn't it? Um, yes. Well, I mean, it's the it's the um, calcium oxalate crystals that, and probably there's probably other toxins too. Long, but, but the and the Abyssinian banana is one of the ones that grows best in Melbourne, isn't it? I mean, it it's, seems to it grows it. better in in Melbourne than a lot of other banana plants. It gets gigantic. It's probably huge, about four mm. meters tall. There's some in the botanic gardens, and it in Ethiopia and the Highlands, they eat the corm. 
right? Which is one that I dug up with some students many years ago was 40 kilos. It was unbelievable. 40 kilos. Yeah. Wow. They also make a product out of the, the fronds. And if you've ever, kochu, uh, I think it's how you say it. So if you've ever been to an Ethiopian restaurant had a kind of, I'm going to say rubbery, it's delicious, tangy, rubbery, what looks like a kind of bread. It's actually made from the fronds of Abyssinian banana. But they don't suck up. That's the difference. They don't produce pups. So I've been growing, I grew a, I've grown a seed orchard at Burnley in order to get a stack of seed. And um, But you can make them, you can induce pups by cutting them right back and slashing into the corm, exposing the corm. And I've just done that at Burnley to see if I can produce them clonally. So, mm. But yes, yeah, so they're monocarpic Virginia. So they do, once they flower, right. they die, which yeah. is a bit annoying. So I'm trying to find a long-lived one, uh-huh. ten, eight to ten years plus rather than three or four. Yeah, monocarpic can be an annoying quality in many plants. It, it can. Like our strobilanthes. One of my favourite plants is strobilanthes and it's monocarpic. And the weird thing about it is it behaves like bamboo. It about, I don't know, about five or six years ago, you found strobilanthes in flower all over Melbourne, absolutely all over Melbourne. And one of the nurseries was selling them in flower and I said, you realise that's monocarpic, do you? So, so what happens if you clip it and stop it from flowering? I have no idea. It's the only time I've ever seen them flower. Because in, in the Whangarei um, Quarry Gardens in the far north of New Zealand, there is a hedge of it which would be two metres high and perhaps 50 metres long. And has been there forever. They've been there forever, and it's clipped. And I suspect that would solve the problem. Well, it must if it's still there. Yeah. Yes, I don't know. We have um, Robert from Mitcham, who is ringing in about roses. Hello, Robert. Mm, good morning, all. Yes, we, we, we have roses, and we have roses, and then we have more roses. <laughs> But, and then specifically, we, we've got uh, McCartney Rose that uh, we love dearly. It's just got lovely, lovely flowers on the brief time that it has flowers and good leaf and everything. And it, uh, but it's, uh, it's currently about ten foot high, about twenty foot wide, and and it's overcoming the backyard. And I'm, I'm struggling to get into my workshop. We cut it back last year, but uh, not a, no, not enough. What can we do? Yeah, it, it wants to grow. Um, can it go up? <laughs> do, you ha- wants to grow. do you have room up? Sorry? Do you have room up? As in, can, uh, you, can you get that onto yes, a pole? Yes, and, and, and I mean, a lot of people come to me and say, I don't have room for another plant in my garden. I think, well, just go up. Mm. You know, put a pole in and, and, and pillar it. Is that possible? Uh, I'd have to say that with with my fear of rose prickles, uh, to get in close enough to put a pole, no, I don't think a pole would work. Sounds like it could be the wrong rose for the position. <laughs> Maybe that's give it to your neighbour. That's what okay. I. Can, that's what. That's always good advice for something that's quite vigorous. Just give it to your neighbour. That way, you get to look at it, and they can live in it. <laughs> How seriously can we cut it back? Um, look, if you if you really really cut it back, it's going to have that vigor. It's going to grow again. It really is. It's you you can't tame the ocean. Um, you can you can certainly you know you, if you, you cut s- it back, it means that while it's growing back again, it'll be a manageable size, but then it will get to this again. Yeah. So winter pruning it creates. Comes down to management. Sorry. It comes down to management. Yeah, yeah. So winter pruning creates growth. Summer pruning creates flowers. So if you cut back in winter, you're encouraging growth. 
basically spring's going to come around and the the flower's going to want to get uh, get some growth on so it can get to flower when you cut back in summer you get more flowers because the idea is that the plant just wants to get flowers. It just it, it, it needs to get flowers. It needs to get seeds. It needs to process uh, its requirements before winter comes. And so that's why uh, we, we cut back in winter to shape it. But then uh, the, the summer pruning is really what's going to give you blooms. So whether it's a summer prune would be better. Yeah, so once after a first flush of flowers, you know, cut it, cut it back again. and cut it hard. Yeah, and it, it, they if you cut once, then you get two branches. Cut again, you get three branches, four branches. It, it divides like that. So the more you cut it, the more growth you'll have. But you can div- spread that growth out of a, a larger period, a larger area. Uh, that's what you see when when people cut back, say, an iceberg, dreaded iceberg. If you cut back that too hard, all of a sudden it's got. Um, all this growth just to put out of a few eyes and so it'll grow hard and it'll grow up and it'll flower and then it'll droop Yeah, because it's put all that energy into just getting as much growth as possible and it's only got a select amount of eyes that's kind of why I say use a hedge trimmer because you're really about shaping it and you've got all these available eyes uh, whether the parts where it's going to grow from and so you're getting more flowers, and they're just not as high. They're just the, the, the flowers aren't you know a foot from the plant. Um, you just get more of a compact dense. It's the same as a bucks's hedge. I mean, if you leave a bucks's hedge, it's going to have one stem, and 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 and, and, and be a like meter it. high. Yeah. It's not going to be a hedge. And so it's the same with the lawn. The more you cut the lawn, the more dense it's going to be. This is this is how plants work. Hmm. <coughs> There you go. I don't know if that answered your question at all, but it sounds like you've got a quite a vigorous plant in a, a, a maybe too small spot. I hope yeah. that helped, Robert. Thanks, Robert. Can I, can I ask some more? Yeah. Far away. <laughs> right. Years ago, uh, we, we rescued uh, a rose that we ultimately come to be known as Isabella Sprint. We showed it to, uh, to uh, John up at, the, up at the nursery, and he was... Uh, quite intrigued by it at the time, and we gave him some cuttings. I don't know whether they ever progressed anywhere. Any thought on that? I'll have to ask him, but it's it's, it's familiar. What was the name of it, Robert? Isabella Sprunt. Okay, Isabella we'll ask John, yeah. and we'll come back to you on a future program. <laughs> there you go. Other than that, uh, we've got a Baxter's Beauty that desperately needs help. Any thoughts? In which way does it need help? <laughs> it's not flourishing. It's not flourishing. Mm. Um, and how old McCartney. Held um, the Baxter. Sorry? How, how, how old, old is the plant? Oh, it's probably 10 years old. It, it might be just getting too old now. Yeah. Is there oh, enough nutrients feeling. around it? Probably not enough. Yeah. Maybe give it a summer prune and see if that helps it. Yeah, blood and bone is a, is a great predictor if things are going to push on. You know, a nice big handful of blood and bone, you'll see what comes out of it. One handful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One handful of blood and bone in, on anything and you'll very quickly work out what's wrong with it. Yeah, because yeah. all the nutrients are really available right there. It'll, it'll show you what's wrong. Yeah. I have been using uh, blood and bone around the place, but uh, probably not enough. Blood, yeah, uh, blood and bone is amazing. It's cheap and it's it's just so effective, and you get such quick results from it. But you don't need a huge amount. No. No, 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 no. Mm. There you go. One other one, uh, and this is not our place. My my, my daughter's got uh, a uh, a big uh, Rod Stillman. Oh yeah, yep. They got rose. It. Uh, 
it's suffering from uh, many, many, many years of non-pruning. Mm-hmm. And while it uh, flourishes up, up, up high, it, uh, we, we're at a loss to know how to uh, try and uh, make it a, a more presentable. Well, pretend yeah. like uh, maybe a rhino has run through it and just cut it right back to the to the ground level. <laughs> really, I mean, once once they get to a certain point, you can either put a match in it, or uh, or you can just cut the thing at the base, and 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 if it's got vigor in the in the roots and the bud, it'll it'll come back and you get a whole new rose out of it. That's the Peter Cundall yeah. treatment. Is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, treat him mean. There was one other thing that my wife said uh, I I should ask you, that's how to stop her growing more cuttings. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't. No, don't. Absolutely wouldn't. Thanks very much. I'll say that a bit, the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Rob. Thanks very much, Thanks for everybody. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we have another message for Chris. Further to your excellent Yarra City work, how could you convince the Yarra Council to set up edibles, raised boxes or small patches beyond Burnley and into the Richmond streets? For example, Yarra Council are currently proposing closing off Charlotte Street and creating a green space, the perfect space for some for edible urban skills. Uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess the good thing is that Yarra uh, was the first council in Australia to have an urban agriculture facilitator who works closely with all the open space people there. So, and I've just heard, I'm on the Yarra Environmental Advisory Committee and I just heard about the Charlotte Street closing. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're interested, just contact, um, email or call the Urban Agriculture Facilitator at Yarra. And, um, and I've actually forgotten there's been a bit of change there. But that, that, in other words, that position exists and that position exists to help uh, residents set up planter boxes actually on their uh, out the front, so that that's already a program, and they've done a lot of work to develop a, a, a low uh, yeah a low input planter box from recycled plastic. Um, but yeah, call, contact them and say that you 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 believe that, that in the design of this new space there should be uh, scope for edibles. Right, that sounds an excellent idea, and give us another edible plant. Sure, what's a um, I might uh, I might. Get out this little tiny uh, aquatic herb. So I I know it, and I'm going to say it badly in Vietnamese. Rao Om. It's Limnophila uh, aquatica, I think, and um, it's it's very popular in Vietnamese uh, cuisine. And you, you see it's for sale for you know two dollars a bunch at the Preston Markets where I get it. Easy to strike from cuttings. Um, actually, apparently it's a well-known aquarium plant, but it's just got the most amazing sort of curryish curry ginger fragrance so feel free we're to all a, going to try this yeah. one now listeners a bit of noise of munching yeah um oh it's mm, nice yeah great. really mm, yum so deserves yeah. deserves to be better known it um, trumps the hibiscus <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i love it so and the the proper name so people can look it up limnophila l-i-m-n-o phyla and then, I, yeah, and then the yeah, P-H-I-L-A, and then I think the species epithet is Aquatica. But you'll certainly, if you look up rice paddy herb or Rao Om, R-A-U-O-M, that's the uh, Vietnamese name, um, yeah. So you grow that in a tray of water? or Absolutely. So yeah. like, a lot, like a lot of these things, like Kang Kong, for example, water spinach, it can be truly aquatic or it can just sit uh, in, a, in a pot in a 
tray of water. Because mm-hmm. some things don't want to sit in still water. True. Watercress um, would rather Watercress be... is like that. Same with um, not uh, yeah. Same with wasabi. Yes. Must have running water. I'm growing wasabi. Without running water, I put it in. I, I put it in water for a while, then I take it out. Then okay. I put it back in, then I take it out, and it's very Good. happy. Because I've the got, way, sorry, yeah. I've got it going in the garden quite happily. Is that right? Because yeah. I had trouble. I've seen videos of how they grow it in Japan. It's very similar to the English watercress system with just constant running flow, water, flowing water. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Craig's during, over summer if it ever comes. Well, it was there last summer, so this is coming into its second. Whereabouts in the garden? In shade? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and good soil. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. With trilliums. <laughs> Great there combo. You go, there you go. But um, No, I'm having a, a, a big year of – I go through phases, but back into aquatics at the moment. So I'm growing kangkong, lotus I've been growing for years in big tubs at Burnley, um, which is an edible, but I grow it now for beautiful flowers. Mm. So, uh, And water chestnuts too which are very easy to grow in Melbourne. Mm. Do they need running water? No, they'll oh. grow in any old, uh, any old muck. Um, but the, the trick with them is full sun. Um, they'll be, yes, we've been having this discussion about growing things suboptimally, kind of. Uh, so, yeah, they'll persist in the shade a little bit, but really if you want big, lush, grass-like foliage and an actual little water chestnuts with black corms with the white coconutty flesh inside, Full blasting sun. Same with lotuses. So they'd be a good candidate for an old laundry trough. Absolutely, old bath, old any old container with no drainage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, this is why I like aquatics. Funnily enough, because the substrate that you grow them in, it doesn't have to be a refined, perfect potting mix. You know, we we very much say never put garden soil on a pot, right? Because it's way too heavy. It doesn't have all those. Doesn't have enough drainage and the qualities we want in a potting mix but with aquatics completely opposite almost any garden soil will be enough to weigh down say the rhizomes of a of a lotus and um and they don't care yeah it's not about drainage no Mm. well well that is um very interesting now we have another one from harry fantastic show are there any roses that attract indigenous birds for insect foraging or for shelter and nesting Mm. Well, mm. great question. My uh-huh. roses, yeah. My roses have the honey eaters in them. Yeah, my in, in the flowers. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, yeah, particularly with the the the, the ones that'll um, rhizome up, the the ones that'll layer, and giving this like dense carpet on the ground, say a half a meter high. I see a lot of sort of in, um, small little insects and birds and. Yeah. If you leave your roses go, like I've got a carpet rose, which is now about 12 foot high. Yeah, wow. Yep. And I've never touched it. I've never pruned it at all. And it is such a place for the little birds to hide from the big birds. Because mm. I've got kookaburras, currawongs, all those things that chase the little birds. And and the, um, the, the big honey eaters, the wattle birds, yeah. they chase them and they just love getting into that rose to hide. The ramblers. And, yes. and, and the the briars, the ramblers, those climbers, they create a perfect environment for for um, birds both, to both be protected, nest, nesting and absolutely protection. from from cats. I mean, a, a cat's not going to go climbing itself into some of these roses, so it's it's a fantastic uh, environment. And what about nectar? 
Uh, not really. No. Oh. No. Most roses are pollinated by uh, birds. I mean, insects. Insects. Yeah. yeah. That's why they've got a smell. Basically. And on the same sort of thing, Rose from Bentley East has just removed a rose. Is it okay to put another rose in the same position? Well, well technically, no. They do. They do say uh, allow. Uh, a fair bit of room and space before you plant a, a same rose in the same area. Um, yeah. I would. Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah. So the books say no, the panel do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm abstaining. I'm, abstaining. <laughs> Look, I, I, think, I think people get a bit excited about pests and diseases. They'd, yeah, yeah. Like I said, gardening, you should garden from a distance. Yeah. 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 Nice and far back. It looks great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I think, um, I mean, sometimes it's clearly not a good idea, particularly with your vegetables. You need, I understand you it need with food to, crops, yeah, but with a rose? To, yeah, absolutely. Well, even even with a food crop, learning about um, com- companion planting, uh, like borage and things like that, that, that uh, deters insects. You've got uh, marigolds. I mean, there's, there's so many companion plants. And I think that's, that's what we need to do more with gardens is just get a whole bunch of things in there. And, and do companion planting. Yeah. Now, or accept that a cabbage with holes in it just tastes just the same as a cabbage without <laughs> holes in absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Can we just take this call? Because we're running out of time and it's Meg from North Foster. Hello, Meg. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking this call. Uh, I'm wondering whether anybody has any solution for um, buttercups, which are running riot. It's been raining for a couple of years down in my garden. (laughs) And uh, these things, even where I've dug them out and been as careful as I can to get all the roots, they're back in no time. Uh, I don't want to use uh, spray if I can help, but just any other solution. Spray doesn't work anyway. Doesn't it? No. Um, Ranunculus Constantinopolis, is that? It's the little one that. The yellow the one. single yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I've got it in my garden too. Yeah. Can I ask why, why you want to get rid of it? Yeah. Oh, because it's so. It kills other things. Yeah. It oh, it's strangles just absolutely other plants. invasive. Yeah. takes over the whole bed. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with it at Long Acres over the years, and I just dig it out, thin it out. Because I don't think there's anything really you can do about it. No, I, I'm busy every, digging at the moment. Yeah, every little fragment that you leave behind, as you know, reshoots. Yeah. Oh, well, it's very bad news for me then. I was hoping that there was some magical thing I could do. <laughs> have, you, have you tried um, covering it with uh, cardboard? Oh, well, it's all over the place. It's um, mm. yeah. And because the soil is so wet, it's just been so so wet for as I've said a couple of years, um, even digging it, you know, it's just sort of clumps of wet soil. Uh, right. So that, that's a pretty unsatisfactory thing to be doing at the moment. Mm. Mm. All right, well, you're saying that there's really nothing to do but just physically tra- removing it That's repeatedly. been my experience. And mm. mine, I'm afraid. Yeah. And mm. I don't know how it got in there. Nothing eats it. I have a nice double form that's not invasive. <laughs> mm. Mm. Oh, well, look, thank you for that then. <laughs> I was afraid that would be the answer. <laughs> I'd, 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 try, I'd try covering it with some newspaper in places where it's oh, a well, real it's, it's too. It's, it's, it's over a very big area and, okay. you know, it, yeah, it yeah. wouldn't be practical. I wouldn't have enough newspaper anyway, you know, or anything <laughs> to cover it. But it's, um, it's going out into the lawns and that sort of thing. I don't mind the lawn because it'll die when it's hot weather, I imagine, uh, and I can cut it with you know, mow it. Uh, but in the beds, it's um, yeah. in between rocks and all sorts of things. No, I completely understand your problem, Meg. <laughs> Sorry, we're oh, not well. more helpful. 
all that, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to be understood then. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> oh. Whoops. We've only got three more minutes, so we could have one more quick edible oh, sure. vegetable. Absolutely. What I'm going to do is um, grab... Oh, I can't help myself. I've talked about this on this show before, but this is a sweet potato, but I'm highlighting this one because it's an ornamental one. It's a chartreuse, you know, yellow, whatever, however you want to describe that. So they do produce tubers, but not many. Um, it's all about having this extraordinary carpet of, of you know, yellowy foliage. So just to point out that, and often what happens is nurseries don't sell these as sweet potato. They call it, they call it like tricolour, so you'll get them mixed with different varieties, and they literally don't, on the tag, say sweet potato. Right. They just say it's a, you know, colour. Do hmm. I think which was Craig's point earlier? So, um, so yeah, just just look out for ornamental sweet potatoes. I've seen them planted in Burundara in a park in Camberwell uh, with, uh, but yeah, not to everyone's taste. But How I, big does that get? Oh, sprawls huge. Um, this, this would probably take up two square meters if you right. let it really go for it in summer. So yeah. the rise in a bit of shade. Yeah, uh, these guys do actually. The yellow ones are a bit weak so a little bit of light shade is actually quite good whereas normal uh-huh. sweet potatoes actually they're all shade tolerant in the sense they'll produce foliage if you want serious tubers with the proper varieties you, you need blasting sun but for a gold foliage plant like that this know. gets burnt in the full sun yeah, yeah that's good right. point mm. well that's that is in, and it will produce a tuber but not many of them yeah so don't 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 grow them for the tubers <laughs> right. just a bit of a nibble just a bit of a nibble <laughs> Well, this has been a very interesting program. I think I've, I think our listeners have enjoyed it. So thank you to all three of you. Thank you. Thanks and for joining. Yeah. Ruben, we might ask you to come back again because Absolutely. I think to. it's nice for people to have a rose person come in. Thank you. And Craig is a very popular regular. And Chris, we don't have enough of you. We oh, might have to you. have more of you. I'll be a semi-regular. A semi-regular. Well, thank you, listeners, and make sure you tune in again next week. Bye.